This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. If you're listening in the United States, happy Thanksgiving. We are recording this ahead of the holiday, of course. Um, but we want to talk about the movies that people may be watching either on screeners or in theaters over the long holiday weekend here in the States. Uh, we'll talk about some news in the world of awards. We'll talk about some new releases like The Color Purple. And then at the end of the show, we're going to have a special bonus Thursday interview. Uh, David Canfield to talk to the star of Napoleon, Vanessa Kirby. Um, so let's talk about award show news. I don't know how many people were waiting with bated breath to find out where the Golden Globes are going to air. But I I know we were. I know all of us were wondering. And we're kind of genuinely surprised when the news broke last week that they'll be on CBS, which I, you know, according to Matt Bellany and his newsletter, they had gone to CBS multiple times and kind of came back with a lower number, which makes sense to me. I don't think it would have taken this long if they had gotten a lucrative network contract from the very beginning. Um but what do we think? Like, the Golden Globes are turning to actual broadcast. This is a good sign for the future of the Golden Globes, I think, right? It is. <laughs> Against all odds. <laughs> Against all odds, it is. And I I kind of think a perfect network for them. You know, CBS skews older, even by the standards of broadcast networks, and has that legacy audience that matches, from what I can tell, the Golden Globes are trying to project, which is this sort of storied, um, not scandal-ridden place in Hollywood history because there are a lot of awards shows right now. And once everything started, you know, that House of Cards came down with the HFPA, the conversation around the show was like, well, why does it have to be them? They're just a bunch of random people voting. It can literally be any awards that get this profile. And their counter was always like how long they've been around, how long they've been on television, what the brand means. And this seems like a really effective way of leveraging that and that they did that successfully. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a huge win for them. I had been joking, I think, for months that it was just going to end up on Variety.com. So this is, a, <laughs> which is a Penske, um, which is organiz- literally what the Billboard Music Awards did. Yeah, which yeah, they the, aired uh, last, uh, last night as we record this, like on some random website, which most people would not know because it was on mm-hmm. some random website. So, I mean, CBS is a big win for them, especially when it comes to getting talent to show up for this. I think there's mm-hmm. no doubt in my mind now that you know, everyone will come um, because it will be on broadcast. And, and yeah, CBS is the home of the Tonys and the Grammys. So, you know, they're already sort of known for this. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good win, but it sounds like, you know, at a much, much lower uh, licensing fee than the deal they previously had with NBC. The Tonys, the Golden Globes, what a cursed award show is CBS <laughs> going to acquire next? I mean... <laughs> Don't say the Oscars. Uh, no, no. The Oscars are bigger than ever. <laughs> the The next question is, who do they get to host? Um, 
which I think will be interesting to kind of sit and watch because it, they've got to announce soon. I mean, this is a January 7th award show, so we're... Yeah, oh that, that's God. the other thing is it's so rapidly approaching and, you know, we're recording this the week of Thanksgiving. Things start slowing down very quickly in Hollywood uh, around this time. And then suddenly everybody's back. And as we've talked about, January is going to be insane. And this is kind of the kickoff to that insanity, at least in LA. So I... I would imagine they're working pretty hard to put everything together right now and make it something that people are going to watch because even with that lower licensing fee, I'm sure there are a lot of there's a lot of pressure on on delivering to a certain extent because the ratings fell pretty significantly on NBC last year. Do you think a host is necessary to, for building up that profile because the Golden Globes function without a host? For a long time, I think, like until the Ricky Gervais era. So, like, could they just focus on getting the talent to come and let the host thing be secondary? I kind of think it's important if you're if you're communicating a sort of return to grandeur with this show. While you're completely right, I think at this point in the popular imagination, it does exist as the show that had Tina Fey and Amy Poehler or Ricky mm-hmm. Gervais, yeah. uh, you know, comics who could effectively skewer the people in the room uh, a little bit with a little bit more bite than at the Oscars. Um, that's kind of how it has stood in the culture the last few years, um, at least the last few years that it was a big deal. So I, I think they'll want to do that. I think they will want to communicate, we are back, we are bigger than ever, uh, and we are going to throw the biggest party of the year because that was always the sell. You think they're going to invite Gerard Carmichael back? No. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> it was never their thing, but I wonder how much like CBS pushes for a CBS talent sort of situation or if that doesn't even matter. Like, I don't even know who that would be. It's like Jeff Probst or who do we get to? Taylor Tomlinson, uh, who's taking James Gordon's slot, I guess. NCIS LA's own uh, Linda Hunt. Sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Oscar winner. Or, or Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J. That's that also, they're true. on the same, they're all on the same show. LL Cool J hosted, what, the Grammys a couple times? I feel yeah. like he he has he some award show host experience. Sure. Carrie Preston should do it. She has her own oh CBS show coming out. The Holdover's own Carrie Preston? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a great idea. It is kind of interesting, though, talking about, okay, who could potentially host and just thinking about how, like, the Amy and Tina years weren't that long ago. They were, I right. guess, 10 years right. ago at this point. But, like, we don't really do we have people like that anymore? Like I just feel like network mm-hmm. television is not churning out like you know, there's not the SNL to sitcom pipeline there was back then. And um I don't know, it's just an odd thing to think about that we sort of don't have that same pool of talent or to pull from. Yeah, I mean if you think about I, I was thinking about somebody like a John Mullaney, but he's he's not as big as they are, as they yeah. were. Right. Um but I think he probably occupies that kind of niche and would do a good job, I think. He and, was it Nick Kroll did Indie Spirits together? Mm-hmm. And they were yeah. so good. I mean, that show allows them a lot more freedom, but he's a great host. Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea. And they're a little bit bigger in profile now than they were back yeah. then. Mm-hmm. But is that a CBS vibe? Like, is that what you would think no. their audience is going to want to go <laughs> They're be like, who is this man? <laughs> <laughs> well, they could do it as their, um, their Oh Hello characters from Broadway, the old men, and just like fit right into the demographic. So what you're saying, Katie, is this is the comeback for Jeff Foxworthy that we've been waiting for. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you might be an HFPA member if... <laughs> Well, the Golden Globe nominations are going to be announced on December 11th. They'll come on the heels of, I know, the New York Film Critics Circle, probably L.A., some other critics groups. Um, But that will be a very interesting point for hopefully some chaotic nominations that we always hope for. Um, But uh, maybe then we'll get a sense of which names are going to be there, which celebrities they nominated just for the sake of showing up. And kind of the proper Golden Globes anticipation can begin. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, then speaking of award shows and the Oscars, our deeply personal favorite, uh, Rebecca, you picked up the uh, unsurprising, but I still think interesting news that Jimmy Kimmel is coming back to host the Oscars. Um, I would have put money on that. How about you? Yeah, it's not surprising, except when I started to like really think about Kimmel and how, you know, after he hosted those two back-to-back years, he was like, I'm never doing it again. And then he came back last year and I'm like, sir. Um, but he, last year went really, really well. I think, you know, mm-hmm. most people were very happy with how he just delivered a calm, normal show. Um, and, you know, he he's really great at hosting. So it's it's and obviously it's um, ABC. So it's it's not a huge surprise other than when I tried to get into the like psyche of Jimmy Kimmel. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's I mean, it's a very smart, safe pick, it feels like. And he, I mean, like, I think one of the issues that I've had with him as a host in the past is that, like, he seems, I mean, maybe more than a little kind of disdainful of the whole thing. You know, he doesn't really care about the movies. He thinks the award shows are kind of dumb. And, like, you know, that's a tone that a lot of other past Oscar hosts have also incorporated in their bits, but, like, maybe a little bit less scornful than Kimmel. (laughs) But this year, you're going to have at least two big Oscar movies in Oppenheimer and Barbie Mm -hmm. that, like, everybody has seen um, and that people do care about. So I wonder if the sort of like go-to joke of like, no one's seen these movies or what are, you know, what is any of this? Um, it's less easy to go to this year, I suppose. It, it felt like he sort of scaled that back a little bit this year too, this yeah. past ceremony. There has to be an awareness that those jokes don't land like they used to <laughs> because the uh, the ratings for the Oscars alone have, have changed pretty dramatically, uh, you know, in the window between when he first started hosting and now. So I, I think that um, it, it will be interesting to see how he meets the fact that the Oscars are, at least in television ratings, less popular than they've been, um, but will have movies that are more popular than they've had recognized in a very long time, at least collectively. Um, so I'm not sure how that balance will be. Also, just uh, going back to the Golden Globes, we didn't mention Stephen Colbert, but he's sort of their Kimmel, CBS's Kimmel. Uh, and it'll be interesting if we have like Kimmel doing the big ABC show, Colbert mm-hmm. doing the big CBS show, etc. Are we ready to see Kimmel dressed as Ken with the vest? Uh, and we how, should be. <laughs> how tanned will he get? <laughs> um, there's also the rumor uh, that I think is surprising to no one that they're trying to open the Oscars with a big Barbie medley and trying to figure out who want to pay for it, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, but I think the idea of Kimmel kind of overseeing like an Oscars that can really lay a claim to spectacle with those two huge movies and then, you know, maybe Wonka get some craft nominations. I don't know. Like we, I'm trying to think of what the other like giant movies in there are going to be. Super Mario Brothers. Um, I think you can't. There can be a celebratory tone to it, and I think he can be really good at that. And as being kind of the steadying, I got you through the La La Land mix up presence that I think he's really established well for himself. Yeah, I mean, they can get the people from Oppenheimer to do the song from that movie. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Blunt's going to do a solo. Yeah. Um, I mean, Color Purple would be a great Mm -hmm. performance. Like, just turn it more into the Tonys, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. if there's a song in your movie, come to the Oscars and perform it. (laughs) Yeah. There's good musicals out there this year, even if they don't want to be marketed as such. But Mm -hmm. that's a a topic for another day. Is there anyone that, like, do, do we think that the Oscars will ever get ambitious about their hosts? Are we just, are we stuck in this period where they think that only late night hosts can do this? Or it was like my continuing dream that Lady Gaga might, like, somehow get convinced to do it. Is that just never going to happen? But how much of it is the talent is like, this is a lose lose job, you know? And how <laughs> yeah. much of it is the Academy wanting a safe bet after a few tumultuous years? I, I don't think we know. I, I am a firm believer that most people offered this hosting job pass because what is what is the gain for a gaga you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's they are often blamed if things don't go well so i feel like it's a risky job to take on i feel like we've maybe floated this in years past but like disney owns abc they also own hulu have they gone out to steve martin and martin short to do it i I think they did and they were just like, like no, it's too yeah, much work. Or, or maybe yeah. they wanted them, maybe they were asked to host the Emmys. I don't remember. I feel like there was certainly something out there about them and Selena Gomez being Definitely. asked to host yeah, the Emmys. Definitely. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, God, of course. Right. Yeah. There was the rumor that it was going to be the three of them. 
Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which would be great. They would be amazing at it. Yeah. Hit the demographics, just like only Murphy's in the Building does. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the same function. And yeah. are on that show with Divine Joy Randolph, who will be a nominee, we're assuming. Who so. can sing and could you yep. find her a song to perform? I don't know what it is. Have her do, I'm just kidding. Just have the cast of Only Murders in the Building, including Meryl Streep, host the Oscars. <laughs> Now, imagining Javon Joy Randolph performing I'm Just Can I. I'm not going to get that out of my head. <laughs> it's uh, Unfortunately, whatever they do will be disappointing compared to that mental image. Yeah, you've kind of set the bar too high already. <laughs> Although I've also been lobbying for Killian Murphy to do I'm Just Ken because I think that'd be hilarious. And Maybe he, they can do it do together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, we're talking about musicals and David, you mentioned The Color Purple as a potential uh, big uh, money-making nominee that could come in there. Um it's not coming out until Christmas, but the social embargo is up. And David and Rebecca, you guys have seen it. And um, David, you were there at the Savannah Film Festival where like part of it showed. It's been a very interesting kind of <laughs> lurking figure for a while now where you know the buzz has been developing. Um, I think we're all excited to see that Danielle Brooks is getting a lot of attention uh, for the role that she played on Broadway so well. Um, where else does the buzz stand on The Color Purple right now? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Daniel Brooks is so good in this movie. And to me, it was a, a clear standout and I think a really strong supporting actress contender. Yeah, the, the the buzz on this one has been building very steadily. Rebecca and I saw it a little bit early. And then out of that, I, I moderated an event in Savannah where they showed some clips and the level of enthusiasm, I think, just for what they were teasing was so high that I'm not surprised that it seems to be playing really well now that it started screening. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big, colorful, no pun intended, um, <laughs> a expansive musical uh, that that feels it feels like we haven't really had one like that this year. We've had a few kind of stop and starts with Oscars in that genre of late, but this is such a storied property. And it's one that has the backing of Steven Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey and Quincy Jones and a really great cast. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just full steam ahead from this point. I think I, I would expect it to be in the conversation for a best picture nomination for some craft nominations and certainly for Daniel Brooks. I think some of what I read and I agree with is that uh, Fantasia Brino's really wonderful in the lead role, but it's it's a more, it's a subtler performance than at least what Cynthia Revo did on Broadway, for instance. Um, and in a really competitive Best Actress year, I, I'm not sure if that gets her into the five. I'm, I'm a little skeptical right now, um, but it is a great performance. Um, and I hope she doesn't get completely lost in that shuffle. Yeah, I I moderated a panel um, last week about uh, For the Color Purple. It was, I think, the second screening of it in town. And I expected it to play well, but I was even shocked with mm-hmm. how energetic the reception was. Danielle got a, you know, there were eight people on the panel. Danielle got a, sta- a huge standing ovation and then so did Fantasia. Um, but it felt like that ro- there was like no way Danielle would not be nominated after seeing the way this crowd received her. And there were like people in obviously a lot of purple, a lot of like costumes. Like I really understood how important this story, the previous film, the stage version, you know, even the book are to a lot of people who are very excited for this new version that maybe I hadn't understood as well, you know, seeing it in a quiet screening room with David. Um, So I think there's a, there's definitely a momentum behind it that makes me take it very seriously for awards. The crafts are very strong as well. Blitz is a, the director is a very good um, so presence, well yeah, yeah. He, he really can talk about the film very passionately and and his vision for it. So they have a lot of the necessary ingredients, I think, to go a long way. And I do think it could do really well theatrically because people are going to see it as an event over Christmas. Yeah, it's a really, really beloved property, you know, yeah. um, all the way back to the novel. You know, um, when I first moved to New York, my first job in the city was selling group tickets over the phone at a call center to Broadway shows. And um, by far and away, the Color Purple was the number one group ticket thing, you know, church groups coming up from the Baltimore area, all over the Eastern Seaboard, basically. And I think I love this part of your origin story, by the way. (laughs) Anytime you bring this up, I'm just like, what you learned from that fascinates me. I mean, Color Purple was the big narrative uh, of the the months that I was working there. Um, And I think that the movie is well-timed. You know, we did have a revival on Broadway with Cynthia Erivo, that had transferred from the West End. Uh, but that was long ago enough that maybe I think people are like ready for it again. If it had come out right on the heels of that, I think it might have been kind of oversaturation in some ways. Although 
you know, I, I often forget that, like, even if a Broadway show is a big, big hit, that does not mean it has, like, national identity necessarily. Yeah. Um. So I think for a lot of people, this is, I, I love the book. I've seen the Spielberg movie. And now I'm finally getting to see the musical because I didn't have the money to see it on in, in New York or on tour or whatever. So it's going to be a first time for a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of anticipation for it. And it cannot be discounted. I, I feel sorry that it feels in my mind that Divine Joy Randolph is now moving down to second position and supporting actress. But like, oh, wow, what I've really? heard of Daniel Brooks so far, it's like, how do you, it's, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I'm a little bit like, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but there is that very serious momentum behind her specifically. I have spoken to, so I'm curious to hear what you'll think, Richard. I have spoken to a few critic friends who aren't as high on the movie and I, I wonder what those reviews are going to look like when the the critical embargo breaks, um, because as we know, this academy has changed, and we can at times be a bit fooled by these initial sort of rousing screenings mm-hmm. uh, that we take part in, uh, and that happens a little bit every year with some of these late breakers. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself. You know, I think there are people who are already like, "Here's your best picture sleeper." Um, and I don't know about that, but um, it's really competitive in a lot of areas. And if it can sustain this starting pace, it is going to be one to watch in a lot of races. And they have the added benefit that they're coming out post-strike. They have this cast that is extremely um, charismatic and seems very uh, happy to do a lot of things together, which we've seen, you know, when when these casts kind of have that momentum as a group, it really helps. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it'll be a strong run for them. You were talking about the way that the Academy has changed, David, in terms of its taste, which I think in your case meant, you know, more international, sometimes more esoteric, sometimes, you know, going the route of Parasite rather than something more um, uh, blatantly crowd-pleasing. It's also gotten more diverse, as we all know, but I think we have still seen a lot of films with primarily black cast struggle at the Oscars in ways Mm -hmm. that we wouldn't have expected at this point at the race. Is there reason to be nervous about that outcome again this time? I was just talking to uh, another pundit over the weekend at an event about the woman king and mm-hmm. and what happened there. Yeah. Um, because it, it remains a movie that had that kind of rollout. I mean, I remember the buzz coming out of that Toronto screening. I remember the box office for mm-hmm. that movie. Viola Davis got out there a lot uh, and it just completely came up short. And I mean, I think, did it get any nominations? No, mm-hmm. right? No. Yeah, it was snubbed across the board. Um, I, I don't think that fate will befall the color purple, uh, at least to that extent. It's, first of all, a very, in the end, uplifting movie, and it it's has that element of filling your heart that is really important for a broad Oscar contender. And again, it, it's, it's a title everybody knows. It's a title that um, a very different Academy, <laughs> uh, a much wider Academy uh, embraced, uh, to some extent at least, uh, many, many years ago. Yeah. So while I don't think that it's at that in that level of danger, yeah, I mean, is this the kind of movie that can win the SAG Award for Best Ensemble and then go on to get like two or three Oscar nominations and not winning anything? Probably. Mm. Um, I, I don't know that it's at a level of undeniability, um, at least at this stage, just given wh- how we've seen the Academy treat certain commercial movies uh, with largely black casts or all black casts. Um, so it is an area of concern. Do we know if it's rated PG-13 or R? It can't be R, no. Okay. I just think, I was thinking about how violent The Woman King was and whether or not that was something. it's between PG and PG-13. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just, is this as like, you know, not as family friendly as Wonka, but like exactly the kind of movie you can take your whole family to, um, which could be another huge thing working in its favor. I also think that if, the Woman King had come out two months after it did, it would have been a different story. You know, mm. that movie was kind of put out earlier in the fall um, and was treated as a, you know, early mid-fall action movie and and not much else, even though it was written about very differently and talked about differently by some people as, you know, as a serious awards contender. Color Purple does not have to fight that branding. You know, it it is already very much positioned as the big Christmas awards movie that's coming out, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it has that momentum behind it already, which Woman, Woman King had to kind of fight for uh, and ultimately just I don't think it had the runway to do it. Color Purple's box office ceiling is also much higher. Yeah. Like it could be a huge mammoth hit and that would be 
I think, transformative for its awards chances because there's a real story behind a movie like that being so successful. Yeah. And it's I, I always think of The Greatest Showman when I think of like holiday hits and award season because mm-hmm. like it, it grew so slowly that the Oscars never really got a chance to catch up. And you can imagine mm-hmm. if it had come out a month earlier, it would have gotten more nominations. But The Color Purple is being positioned differently than that was. Like that was such an odd outlier that none of us really saw coming. And The Color Purple is like, here you go. This is your contender. I don't think it'll be harder to catch up in that way. And also, um, as opposed to The Greatest Showman, the songs in Color Purple are good. So. <laughs> no, I'm, being, I'm kidding. I like some songs in Greatest Showman. Uh, I was listening. Uh, it came up on a Peloton ride, uh, This Is Me. And I was like, God, it's so such a shame it didn't win the original song Oscar. And then I realized it lost to Coco. And I was like, OK, fine. Um, <laughs> that's, that song still works. Yeah. I mean, the, the Christmas box office is, I think, a source of anxiety for a lot of people who care about these things because it's just kind of empty compared to what it might have normally been, owing to many factors that we've discussed plenty of times. Um, but if, you know, if Wonka and The Color Purple do well and like maybe Aquaman, sure, why not? That would be a really good sign for everything. Like, I think there's really there's reason to believe that might be possible. I've heard like good, vague things about Wonka. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. feeling optimistic about how this might go, even though there's so few films to choose from. Yeah, I mean, I guess there has to be one uh, Wonka optimist among. Us. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's that. That is me. A persistent. I'm, I, I am, I am keep, keeping that stance until proven I, otherwise. I think you've converted me. I'm I'm expecting now to like Wonka and for it to make fifty million dollars opening weekend. There we go. So there we go. You've ru- you've ruined me. You've heard of optimism now. Wonktimism. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to point out one more thing about The Color Purple. I didn't realize how many people are in that cast and double dipping this season. We've talked about Coleman Domingo, who has a role in this and is also in Rustin. Um, but also Anjanou Ellis is in it and is also in Origin. And John Baptiste is in it, I'm learning from Wikipedia, and is mm-hmm. the subject of American Symphony. That's just so many people who mm-hmm. are uh, all over the season otherwise. Good for them. Anjanou basically has a cameo, but is so lovely in said cameo. Well, of course um, she is. Yeah. It's early, too. So it's a nice little entry into the movie. Yeah. Well, speaking of me being an optimist about properties that people underestimate, I just wanted to put in a quick word about the Adam Sandler iguana movie, Leo, which is on Netflix. I didn't ask you guys ahead of time. I'm just going to assume I'm the only one who's watched this movie. That's correct. Yes. Well, (laughs) it's pretty good. I'm just just want to say it is delightful. I've watched it with my kids multiple times. Um, I think where you land on Adam Sandler doing his kind of like silly for kids thing can vary greatly and with good reason. Um, But something about aiming directly to kids, I think, works out well about this. It's about an iguana who is a class pet. Uh, It's got plenty of silly and dumb jokes in there. Um, But it's also about him kind of helping various fifth graders like accept themselves and accept each other and learn who they want to be in the world. And and it's a musical. It is one of many other musicals out this fall. And one I had absolutely no idea was going to be that um, before I turned on the link from Netflix. Um, It's got some kind of theatrical release, but it's also on Netflix. You can watch it now. Um, I... I mean, I haven't looked that closely at the animated feature race. I don't have like super high hopes for it breaking in there. Um, but I just wanted to to throw it out as something that you might think you're dreading showing up on Netflix and having to watch with your family over the holidays, but might surprise you. Yeah, I had heard it was good. Yeah, I keep hearing yeah. good things about it. Um, I love that it just came out and you've already watched it quote multiple uh, times with uh-huh. your children. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 how weekends go around here. <laughs> yeah. It's either that or Legend of Zelda. We have to choose our screen time. <laughs> We should, ha- yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious what what the, your kids think about the Zelda movie. Oh my God, they ask me every day when the Zelda movie's going to come out, and I'm like, <laughs> many years from now. <laughs> I know plenty of adults who are asking that question. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the Zelda movie, Richard? This wasn't on our lineup, but now I want to know your thoughts. I mean, live action is that that's that's okay. A that's choice. a big swing. That's uh-huh. a big swing, and I think it brings up a whole lot of other questions about like how those characters are designed and what country mm-hmm. they're designed in and like how do you cast in the kind of appropriate way for the, you know i don't know but um i think uh they've got their work set out for them i think as an animated movie that's a lot easier to do and also th- there is the problem also that in the games link never talks mm-hmm. he kind of grunts Small and problem. otherwise reacts <laughs> but does not have dialogue in the way that zelda and other characters do so i don't know how you handle that but um yeah, I mean, it is, as you told your kids, a long way off. And actually far away enough that they might not care anymore when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. We haven't even gotten to Tears of the Kingdom yet. So we've got many hours of Zelda ahead. 
Right. I would bet a game will uh, be nicely timed to the release of that mm, movie. They do. They are good at marketing over there at Nintendo. I also support the Hunter Schaefer casting petitions. As Zelda, see, I like see, it. We are. Uh, She's got the look. I'm a. I'm a new uh, Zelda player. I haven't even gotten to actually meet Zelda. I just. Uh, we're just following Link around in the countryside. So. She she's already having to like comment on it, like being asked uh, on red carpets. And again, this movie. And what is she? Is, is she like putting herself out there for it, or she's just? She's like, sure, like <laughs> sure. sounds great. Yeah, it's hard to imagine saying uh, no, thank you at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the early, early, early expectation is that will be a, a hit of some kind. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Uh, well, I'll be spending a good chunk of Thanksgiving playing uh, Breath of the Wild with my children. <laughs> um, but we did want to close this week's episode, kind of talking about the concept of Thanksgiving movies and screener movies, which I think we talk about a lot without necessarily defining our terms and maybe we don't need to but I always remember what uh, Mike Hogan original uh, host of this podcast used to say about people putting on a disc in their Bel Air mansions with the sun streaming through the windows and a movie that can grab their attention otherwise Um, that to me is kind of the definition of a movie that plays well on a screener Um, do you guys have your own personal ideas of like what makes a movie something that you feel confident will translate even in that format if my mom can come periodically into the TV room after being in the kitchen for 20 minutes and sort of be able to follow the story, great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she, my mom will see maybe a third of the movie and like it, you know. Um, or sometimes she'll come in to check in on things and then sit and watch the rest of the movie. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the holdovers, well, I want to see that in theaters with them, you know. Um, one risk I was maybe considering taking if I get a screener of it is May-December. Mm. Kind of borderline. Um, that's for the for the grown ups only Thanksgiving. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are no little ones in in my my family at the moment. So, um, but I think that like you know that kind of broad accessibility or like you know many quadrant sort of appeal uh, is always a good way to go. Um, you know, a war film always goes down well with my father. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but I think really looking at the the kind of crop of stuff out there, Flower Moon is too long. I think, mm-hmm. um, but holdovers really, it's not, that's not a short movie either, but like it's, it's over two hours, but like, I think holdovers is funny, heartwarming. It's holiday ish, you know, it's over Christmas. And, um, I think that's the clear front runner for me, but maybe I'm forgetting something. Just don't call it cozy. No, <laughs> God, <Yeah>. no, no. <laughs> penalty of death. As we learned on this podcast. <laughs> um, for me, it's it's uh, two genres, uh, comedies and biopics, I think, mm. tend to be yep. really... I mean, I guess with the exception of, like, Oppenheimer. Although, apparently, that, that would be fine, based on the way it's performed. Um, but those are two, I think, really safe, uh, accessible genres. And to Richard's point, the kinds where you can dip in and out a little bit. I'm, I'm bummed American fiction is not a part of the Thanksgiving holiday it was as it was originally planned to be obviously understandable why but i think that would have been a perfect long weekend theatrical experience for mm-hmm. families especially because it's it's a little barbed but it's also got a real heart and it, it is a family it's story. about family uh, yeah yeah is it does it happen over thanksgiving i'm trying to remember if there's like a holiday in the midst of it's all kind the of family summary stuff right because yeah there's... i get no yeah you're right there at martha's vineyard yeah yeah no, excuse me, Katie. They're on the South Shore. They're in situation. Oh, my goodness. Ugh, How dare you? All right, Massachusetts. <laughs> they, they, I, what's, what's I think town? there also is something fun. I mean, maybe American fiction will have to be held for Christmas, you know, uh, for viewing with family. But, like, I know in, in – my mom sees a lot more movies these days than she used to. But, like, in, in years past, it was, like – if we would watch something over Thanksgiving or Christmas and then that movie was in the Oscar race for the rest of the season, my mom would be like, oh, remember, we saw that together. You know, that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. like when you're it's kind of like your family's picking a horse for the campaign, mm-hmm. you know, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think any of the movies we've already mentioned do have that same also awardsy tie in, which is nice. It's funny because the I'm already at home, so I've, I was able to. Uh, run this question by my parents in person. Mm. Um, but uh, they have already seen the holdovers, which I think was the one I was definitely sure I was going to show them because uh, I remember seeing it in Telluride and being like, this is the perfect family holiday film. Mm-hmm. Um, Did they love it? They loved it. They, My dad asked me for the, the soundtrack. And um, oh, my parents do this thing where they say, I hear this is getting a, awards attention. I'm like, that is my job, mom. I can tell you that, <laughs> but, but I don't know who I don't know who they're hearing it from. Um, but they like to tell me what's getting awards attention. So, um, but I I talked to them both, and they're both interested in 
um, both Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon because they didn't want us in the theater for three ah, plus hours. Uh-huh. And so they, those right. are movies yep. they would consider screeners, perhaps over more than one evening. I'm sure the filmmakers would love to hear that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I hadn't really con- considered that as like, oh, that that would be a good screener situation either for now or Christmas for them. Um, and then I would love to show them past lives, which they haven't, you know, they missed and I think is would be a really enjoyable uh, at home viewing as well. Yeah, that's yeah. a great one that I think would translate really nicely. Uh, even, you know, hopefully you don't walk in and out. But Richard, I can imagine your mom getting sucked in if she came in. Yeah, came yeah, that would be a sit down. Yeah, yeah, she would. She would sit down. I mean, I think the funny thing. Remember, there were there there were some movie theaters that got in trouble for doing an intermission in Flower Moon, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then they had to like the studio intervened and they had to stop and doing Thelma. That. <laughs> Thelma was not happy. Right. Oh, man. Yes. But you can't stop that in the house. Right. Right. <laughs> you can't tell so, me when you go to the bathroom. You could press pause and have lunch and then come back to it. You know, if if you wanted to, maybe or maybe you'll be so sucked in you won't want to. You'll just want to watch it through. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a funny thing, and I I think that like also because I'm sort of captive at home and like there's nowhere to go. I mean, really, you know, like it's been in the past a good opportunity for me to catch up with documentaries and um, international titles. You know, because mm-hmm. uh, it's like, well, what what else am I doing? And um, and so maybe take a few risks there. Uh, like I I have a screener for the Teachers Lounge, which I know Katie you really like. Oh to Toronto. yeah, David and Katie um, and I too. Love that. Oh David yeah. too, yeah yeah. Um, so I was thinking of maybe doing that because uh, my parents do like foreign films and and um and I you know it's a perfect time slot to watch it that is a great pick Mm -hmm. i promise you will not regret that yeah it's it's quick and it's gripping and yeah that'll go well length is a kind of interesting quite like i i find for myself like if i'm taking a killers of the flower moon for example i know if i had not like say it were just a movie that came out that i missed like i would be very unlikely to watch it at home because i'm kind of always thinking about how much time i'm dedicating to it Mm -hmm. in the moment and i i think about like Netflix's output over the last few years, at least on the award side. And it does feel like there's always this kind of tight two hour cutoff, like Power of the Dog was at two hours. Uh, Maestro is at two hours. Um, and I think that there's probably something to that. I don't know how much of that is the filmmakers and how much of that is the studio. Uh, and of course, the filmmakers, uh, I'm sure, have the final say. But there is something to that. And I, I do wonder, especially as movies like Napoleon, which will be four hours on Apple <laughs> from what we've heard. Right. Yeah. Apple's just like, here you go. <laughs> no limit to how long these can be. Um, you know, how they how they will play, especially over the holidays, um, because it's going to be, it's a big investment and people who maybe haven't paid as much attention, who miss them in theaters uh, and click on that, you know, icon in their Apple TV or however they watch it will be like, oh, so that's the night then. <laughs> Well, let me suggest a way for you to watch a long movie uh, in segments uh, with the filmmaker's approval, because Baz Luhrmann recut Australia into a Hulu series. <laughs> I knew this was coming. Um, it's it's called a film in segments, not a limited series, at least. According. So I interviewed him as part of a press day last week, and that was that we're, they were very clear on. I think you could call it a limited series personally, but uh, far be it from me. Uh, I was a big defender of Australia back in 2008. I have no idea where any of you land on this movie. You've probably forgotten about it entirely as most people have. Um, I liked it fine. I remembered it. Yeah. It is a good time in five segments. Uh, you can go back and see Baby Ben Mendelsohn, who I forgot was in it entirely. Uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman looking unbelievably great. Um, and then you don't have to worry about uh, Thelma Shoemaker yelling at you if you watch it in segments. So, <laughs> Katie, weren't you just on This Had Oscar Buzz talking I about it? I was completely yeah. uh, by coincidence because I had been uh, badgering to do that. I was on their, um, they, on their Patreon. They do exceptions. Um, and Australia did get a costumes nominee. A very well-deserved one. So t- technically not of this had Oscar West project, but yeah, you can hear me talk more about it there. And the show is called what? Far Away Downs? Far or Away Downs, which yeah. is the name of the, the cattle ranch that they have out in the outback. Uh, that I did not remember. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot you might be surprised if you pick that one back up. Um, but to go back to theaters, I was also just going to throw out, and I think I had not realized this until now, but Maestro is in theaters to some extent this weekend. And yes. I think it's the only uh, Oscar contender with Thanksgiving as part of the film. So maybe that alone is reason to go see it this weekend. Yes. Snoopy makes a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that actually, that's a good option too. I think depending on yeah. the bent of your family, you know, like if and where it's playing and where it's playing, of course, yeah, yeah. I probably will not be playing in Providence where I will be, but um, something to maybe hold for Christmas. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess probably by Christmas it'll be on Netflix. It has to be out there at some point. But I, I mean, seeing that in the theater, I was so glad that I did. It sounds unbelievable. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really worth it for people if they want to seek it out. And it's not quite as long as Killers of the Flower Moon. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, David, to close out the show, uh, you talked to Vanessa Kirby, who has been so, is, who is such a standout in Napoleon. I feel like she's the main thing I keep hearing about. And I think we all know her scene-stealing abilities from The Crown and the Mission Impossible movies. I haven't seen Napoleon yet, but uh, I'm incredibly excited to see what she has to offer in this movie. Yeah. Speaking of uh, interesting Thanksgiving releases, this is <laughs> out in theaters uh, via Sony and Apple this weekend. And yeah, Vanessa Kirby is amazing in it and holds the screen pretty much every second uh, that she is, that the camera's on her, even when it's, you know, maybe going in a bit of a, a bit of a strange direction. Because certainly when I watch this movie, my first thought was, what did the scenes look like between Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby uh, before the camera started rolling? Because the energy of them is is not what I think anybody expected. Uh, and for me, in the best way, but definitely uh, one that I think would require a level of prep that maybe I wouldn't have expected for a movie like this. Yeah, I cannot wait to hear uh, what was going on over there, what was going on on that massive <laughs> set. Um, so let's hear your conversation with Napoleon's Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby, welcome to Little Gold Man to talk uh, about Napoleon. When I saw this movie, it, it your scenes especially, I was so surprised, and I've said this on the podcast, by how funny they were at times. So I did just want to jump right in and start with the dynamic between you and Joaquin. Um, was it as funny between you as, as it looked for us watching? Because it's also very intense, but uh, the comedy is pretty central. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether we planned for it to be that way, but I think it sort of naturally started evolving because it felt human. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Almost the more extreme a circumstance, the more absurd in a way. And therefore, to kind of counteract the deep pain and the brutality of everything, it felt like naturally yeah you sort of offset it as a as a human or try to so that started happening naturally and I think it also probably came from the fact that we in between scenes because it was as you say so intense we would laugh together a lot and so I'm sure that kind of was sort of interchanging all the time yeah there's also such a fascinating power differential between these characters. I mean, when you go into a movie called Napoleon, about Napoleon, you're expecting this epic portrait of this um, brutal, world-changing general. And instead, in your scenes, you get this portrait of this really resolute, strong woman in Josephine and this very insecure, (laughs) at times very strange man in Napoleon. In terms of finding that dynamic with him and just in your own research, like, how did you think of this marriage and how did you play it with him? Mm. I think we both felt it was the one of the most fascinating <laughs> and, and contradictory and complex relationships we'd ever come across. Um, mm-hmm. I urge anyone to, you know, go in and sort of explore it more because yes, <laughs> it was such a, um, you know, his letters, for example, even as a starting point, 
it's kind of unbelievable that you had this, you know, as you say, the sort of military general who's out there on the battlefield, you know, a, a genius at military strategy, but also instigating war um, and conquering land and then rushing back to his tent to write these letters, which almost feel adolescent in their obsessive, yes. compulsive nature. I mean, he wrote to her nearly every day and she didn't write him back in the early days at all. And it was so interesting looking at their, you know, decades-long relationship and how dependent they were on each other, codependent, really, I think we felt. And therefore, the kind of um, the power shifts within it and the the need to possess and all the things that, that, that make it not a the 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 relationship and the and the arc of the relationship not a kind of um continually maturing and deepening mm -hmm. but more effusing with each other and um a need and i think in any relationship where there's extreme need and there's something unhealed in them as individuals when they come together there's inevitably going to be something that's um naturally volatile i would say mm. Not to say that that would also describe your dynamic with Joaquin in the making of this movie, but I, I am curious. I know you've talked about um, the openness you had with each other to kind of let loose a little bit and and go off of what was on the script and play the scene as you felt it. Um, I believe the the slap in the movie, for instance, was was improvised. So, what kinds of things came up in, in all that, and what was the level of, I suppose? safety between you that allowed you to go there mm -hmm. I think like with any kind of as a group of actors when you go on a journey that you know is going to involve you know painful things in a psyche to explore or dynamic um it reminded me of it always reminds me of when you go do a play and you go do something like Streetcar Named Desire and you know by the mm. end of the play Blanche as your sister is committed to a mental asylum and has slept with your husband if you were playing Stella, you know, and mm -hmm. and Ben Foster and Gillian Anderson and I did that show once in London in New York and I remember us having a a kind of togetherness in exploring something that's um, searingly painful um, and that togetherness really helps when you're going to those places. Uh, I felt it um, in a movie... Charlotte Booth and I did it at Pieces of a Woman. We also had that. And it's a sense of, um, I guess, knowing that you're there for each other, despite the, the realms that you have, to, you have to go to that are uncomfortable and, and really unpleasant and sometimes very tough. Hmm. Is there anything you remember on your end um, bringing into those scenes that, that kind of came up in the filming of them? You know, the editor reminded me the other day um, that I've completely forgotten, and I reminded Joaquin, and he had also forgotten, but um, in, in this sort of, there was a sequence of scenes that all set over one night after he throws her out and find, finds out that he's, she's had an affair. Mm -hmm. um, and the editor said, oh, you know, some of those takes on the sofa were nine minutes long. And I said to her, oh my goodness, really? I couldn't remember what we did. And she said, oh, you guys did everything. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, she had to find a 20-second scene between them within the, 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 the parameters of everything that we had, we had shot. And so I said, oh, I do remember. I think I screamed in his face. I think um, there was lots of tears. I think there was lots of, yeah. So I, I know that we did a lot within the different, um, because, because, because I think the main reason why is because the, because the relationship never felt like you could, yeah, you could draw on a graph, you know, it just was fluctuating yeah. so much where he was absolutely um, obsessed with her and she wasn't sure about him. And then the power dynamic completely shifted. Um, and then he needed her. And then when he, you know, it sort of really recorded that he believed, and as she did, I found this bit so fascinating in Destiny and in the sort of pre, yeah, predestined, ordained, nature of their relationship she had a a palm reader when she was um 13 on the island she grew up in martinique and 
two friends were with her and they all documented it separately that this palm reader had told her she would become empress. And they were all really confused by it at the time because empress wasn't a word that was coined. And so mm. she was the sense that she had to go to Paris and claim something, some kind of greatness within her that I think then she saw in him and he saw in her. And mm. so there was that as aspect of their relationship that was in a way always going to be insecure because it was this idea of being becoming powerful together and that is always going to be unstable in some ways because it's not um requires external circumstances and so because of that it, it, it and the the sort of micro fluctuations in power between both of them both internally together and then in relationship to this idea of empire which couldn't be mm. on a more extreme scale um yeah. it's, it's going to be yeah, inherently volatile. And so each scene could be played in different ways, depending on where they're at exactly in that moment, both individually and together. So I think we try to play things in as many sort of different ways as possible in case there was a journey there that um, we hadn't missed out on by the time we came to the end. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear you say that because it, it really comes across in the movie, this feeling of you can't pin them down. Uh, you certainly can't pin Josephine down who, you know, she has that uncertainty. And I had these moments watching it where I'm like, what is she thinking right now as Joaquin is doing something particularly bizarre <laughs> across from her, maybe? And I imagine that's pretty fun to play, too, is you could really take it in a lot of directions. Yeah, you know, I I thought when I was starting out on the journey of trying to, I, you know, I played a real character before in in, in uh, The Crown. And of course, I'd so loved the research process. And every single thing that I read about her all pointed to the same nature of person and each account I'd read, whether it would be, you know, some salacious sort of tabloidy type book about her or um, someone within the the palace who had, you know, faithfully written this account of these two princesses and all these different versions. Essentially she was, it all accumulated to become um, one whole. And obviously I had footage mm -hmm. and things and things of her so it was sort of easier in a way and I thought the same thing would happen with Josephine but it was so strange hmm. every single book I read about her was at a completely different angle and often contradicted the one I just read wow. and David it was, it was so confusing because I thought oh my god okay wait maybe maybe by the fifth book it will give me it will kind of con consolidate all those versions I read of her but it didn't yeah. And then as as you start to if you if you looked at her life and all the different she almost lived six lifetimes in one as mm -hmm. a human as it's statistically a human being would. She was um you know a young girl grew up on a tiny Caribbean island very free, you know, grew up eating sugar cane, she lost all her teeth because of it. Um and mm. I did wear a mouth guard in the movie but because okay. she didn't smile with her teeth, you don't really see it. So <laughs> in the film, I, I mean, <laughs> they really smile with my it's teeth for, a lot. It's for the for the character, you know, yeah. internal. <laughs> no one ever thought. Um, but uh, we did play a few moments actually, where Joaquin and I played with that, but they didn't. They didn't. They're not in the film. But um, but anyway, then she was. You know, she la she travelled from Martinique and and on her own left her family at sixteen to marry this total stranger who was an aristocrat, had two children with him, was was shut at home, barely left, let out the house, and then went to, they all were imprisoned and she was nearly executed. Her husband was beheaded and she watched it and um, then was released and became part of the, 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 the you know, a fashion icon at the centre of women's sort of liberation and, mm -hmm. and had lots of affairs with many different generals, including Barras, who was the head of the, of the, of the, at the time, um, and then met Napoleon. And so there's all these different versions of her. And yes. I realised that because... For, for a nature of personality to have lived so many different phases or conditions in life and be able mm -hmm. to adapt. Most people would stay the course of really who they are and not be able yep. to fit into certain, you know, diff different, would sort of drop off from whatever the next phase was. But she managed, and that taught me that she must be such an, a master adapter. And a master adapter to me is able to repress so many of is able to hide a lot of what they actually think because otherwise mm. you'd be outed straight away. You know, you'd be, you wouldn't be able to shapeshift like that. But that is, 
to play as an actor was, was so tricky because I just thought, oh my goodness, how do you how do you bury something and make something ephemeral and um, able to navigate or manipulate your internal life in order to be okay? You know? So it's so interesting and. Hearing you say that, it, it makes me wonder how you found applying that to Ridley's filming style. Um, because he, from what I understand, I, I imagine it was the same in this movie, uses a lot of cameras and does not use a lot of takes. And given what you're saying about Josephine, probably any choice would feel like a bit of a leap to begin with. But then you might not have as many chances to do those different things. So how did you negotiate that in your head? Yeah, so true. And it was tough. I, I hadn't worked that quickly before. Yeah. Sometimes there might be 11 cameras is, is, is the, wow. the most you'll use. And so you might do it once or twice. Um, and I I love going as many times as possible because <laughs> you never feel like you quite hit it. And there's always so much to explore, yeah. um, you know, some of which might be no good at all. It was on the one hand, kind of extraordinary, because if something really magic happened, all the cameras would capture it and you wouldn't have to recreate somehow or try and hit something again. But as you say, the, the, when you're playing someone mercurial like that, it's yeah. you just hoped, dear God, that she has enough internal life that you see inside of it um, because of the nature of... Um, it's harder to make one specific bold choice in the moment because... You want her to um, have that kind of, um, yeah, mercurial type energy. Mm -hmm. But Joaquin and I have talked about the fact that there is also the the nature of the world was so fast moving and intense and brutal that the the pace of the filming was also, I think, added to added to the sense of that somehow. So it was actually really useful and kind of thrilling in a way. Yeah. It's like jumping off a cliff kind of <laughs> with 12 cameras on you at all times. <laughs> so what, one thing I love about your work in this film and, and generally in period work is it, it, it is in no way in that sort of stuffy, typically period vein, there's a real liveness to it. And I think of the crown that you were mentioning as well as this. Uh, and I think that's a pretty active goal of yours in, in projects like this. So with a role like this and a film like this, what are you looking at to to not fall into period traps, to make this feel modern and fresh? Mm -hmm. I think I was really influenced by um, two directors that I worked with in theatre when I was doing theatre for a long time before I ever did screen. Um, one is an Australian director called Benedict Andrews, uh, who I love. Um, and another one is Rob Icke, who's also extraordinary. And they both work in a way where they take these classic plays and they adapt them to feel essentially like as if when Chekhov was writing and his plays were on, it was extremely modern and controversial for people at the time. And so their argument would always be, why should we feel when we watch Chekhov now, like it's a dusty mu museum kind of archive mm -hmm. piece that we're looking into the past. We should feel as if Chekhov intended it for it to feel like it's um, us now and how we could relate to that. Um, and I think I was really lucky in in sort of being influenced like that because I always feel when approaching period, I feel like how could, what is the same essential humanness that's being explored here just because we happen to be wearing different clothes and it happens to be different um, conditions in society. Um, mm. And so... Joaquin and I talked about that a lot too, that we didn't want it to be a conventional period relationship. You know, we wanted it to be strange and unusual and unpredictable and and not to think too much about the, yeah, the external trappings, if you know what I mean, of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, a part of how Ridley Scott tends to approach historical dramas. He's been, he's given some quotes of late, essentially saying, Sticking to the narrative is not important. I mean, I'm I'm definitely paraphrasing here. His is a little bit more colorful, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> um, but but what's what are your feelings on that generally? On you know, obviously you did a ton of research. I'm sure you all did. But then you have to make a movie, and there are some not necessarily shortcuts, but uh, choices that have to be made to make the best film you can. 
I think it's like with anything, isn't it? It's an interpretation of mm-hmm. an exploration of a psyche, really. Um, whether you decide to do a modern adaptation of Shakespeare or you decide to keep it in that era or, um, you know, you mm-hmm. you set it in a, in a completely different country. I mean, I, I just feel like it's, um, to me, it's always going to be a fictional version yeah, and I I think we all felt that on the crown because we were having these conversations behind closed doors, which between, you know, Peter would say, "Look, I know as much as I possibly can about the facts, but the conversations that happen around those facts we have no idea about." And so, in a way, it's just it's just one group of people coming together as an alchemy to interpret that. And my interpretation of Napoleon you know, as one actress that happens to be joining one thing about him of all the many, many, many things that have been written and um, discussed. And when you read a book, a historian offers a different angle on the nature of the man um, based on so many different factors. But for me, I guess I would, as much as I would respect his sort of genius mind and um, be in in awe of this, um, of his determination to do what he did with his life. I will always look at it through the lens of that's a man who went to war a lot, you know, and that and that isn't something that I, mm. I will always have my own angle on that, really. And so mm-hmm. that's my individual specific opinion, but I don't know if that would, that wouldn't necessarily influence the film as a whole. So I think that's just one example of sort of how each person is going to interpret it completely different. I wish there was more of this or think it should be this. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, why didn't it stick to this bit? But the truth is when you read as many books as you can about this man, this incredibly famous man and, you know, a counterpoint in Josephine, it's like with all the books I read on her, just there wasn't one definitive way of clarifying exactly who she was as a person. Yeah. Yeah. In all of this, in, in the playfulness that you're talking about of, of playing these scenes and the, the brevity of some of these takes, like how did you find Ridley as a director, collaborator? He's obviously a uh, unique and I think special personality. Um, but of course you're filming, again, like really intense stuff. He's so brilliant. I mean, he's a master. I'd always wanted to work with him. I was so delighted when he rang me. Um, I instantly said yes. And he is so accomplished that he storyboards everything before and I came on quite late in the process and so I said oh Ridley I would love all your storyboards and I printed them all out and put them on my wall at home because I wanted to (laughs) know what he had in his mind and what we had to get inside of um and when somebody puts a you know eight cameras on a scene in a space and it's a small sort of intimate scene you know, he's cutting as he's going. So there's just, you're on such capable, robust hands. Mm. So it feels very held, even though the nature of what you're exploring, um, you know, we might be going at a fast pace or um, we, you know, we're exploring something difficult. You know that there's, oh, you can kind of relax in that sense because you've got someone who's just so in command of it and knows exactly what he wants. Yeah. So, and he's just, really warm and loving and and there was a familial relationship between him and Joaquin because obviously they worked together so long ago so it was a really beautiful thing to to sort of witness and be a part of Hmm. lovely um so he's talked a little bit about uh this longer cut uh that's coming I think to to Apple and there have been some hints about your prominence perhaps in that cut I'm, I'm curious what you can share just about maybe charting more of Josephine's story even than we see in this theatrical version and and what it's what it was like perhaps to have this kind of robust experience uh and maybe or maybe not see even more of that to come yeah you know it's David it's quite hard to remember actually what <laughs> and and also to not know which way as when you you know when you shoot any movie mm-hmm. it, there's so many different ways it can be edited so I haven't asked Ridley yet, actually, what he's kind of aiming for. And I know that he's editing at the moment. And so I'm really interested to see what kind of, what will be revealed in that version. And it could be longer scenes. It could be different cuts of scenes. Um, There were lots of sequences and scenes we filmed that couldn't make the movie because it was just too long. Yeah. It spans so many years. So I don't know what it's going to, 
Well, it's going to be. I'm I'm as much in the dark as you, I think. Oh, but, okay. But there's definitely uh, Josephine's life before meeting Napoleon. I I think we did film you know long sequences of that. And that's I would imagine stuff that would have helped you unlock. You know, what we were talking about earlier is how she became who she became. Whatever <laughs> that looks like, scene to scene. Totally. I think, for example, everything that I studied about her informed how she was able to survive. Mm -hmm. The main word that kept coming up in everything was survivor. And I thought, what is the nature of that? And what does that mean for her? And mm. when you read about the things that she was able to navigate and persevere at, that I would have honestly day two collapse <laughs> and not been able to continue somehow. But even that she was in prison and she cut off all her hair because the women talked about how if the, the hair would get stuck in the blade, if you don't cut your hair. And so she sort of hacked off her hair and she was 24 hours away from being killed. And her husband had been many, many of her friends had been, they were all in one prison and a lot of the women had to sleep with other men because they wanted to, and get pregnant so that they wouldn't be executed. And she did all those things. Um, and so when she left prison, to me, that was, Napoleon was meeting someone who had come so close to death and had witnessed death and had even cut her own hair off because she imagined the guillotine taking off her head. That's a particular kind of person. You know, that 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 mm -hmm. is a person that is resilient and has come close to something incredibly frightening and has met it, um, you know, confronted it so acutely. And to me that, that I always thought, God, the kind of quiet strength that person would have and that experience and the kind of weight of being a survivor when so many of your friends didn't, that I felt would inform the rest of her life. And so I wanted that nature of personality and somehow for Napoleon to identify this sort of outsider that wasn't part of Parisian society, was not an aristocrat herself. She warns mm. him in one of the scenes, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not clean is what we talked about. Yeah. She, she felt about herself and do you accept me as that? And he feels the same. I think they came from these little islands mm -hmm. that didn't come from French society. They invaded it and sort of, you know, managed to uh, infiltrate it <laughs> and then and then take over this sort of empire. And so mm -hmm. that that those sort of psyches to me, it felt so interesting that these two were drawn together like magnets, even though it was volatile and dysfunctional and difficult. There was an immense recognition. And I think that recognition in a way felt like love and felt like this long-standing, deep, deep love, which was there. But it was a sense of, I know you and I see you and you see me and we're in this together now and we're, we're in it. And I think it was so interesting reading the books about how he suddenly started losing battles the minute that he divorced Josephine and everything kind of crumbled. And that was really interesting is what about these two psyches needed each other in order to do what they did and how did they unlock that in each other? That does it for this week's show. Happy Thanksgiving once again. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, VF Awards Insider on social media. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rye Laws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for best Oscars host suggestion goes to Katie Rich. An iguana who is a class pet. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.